Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, So when Jesus began his public ministry, um, people responded to him in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Some people saw him as primarily a healer because, as we've read the last couple of weeks, he often went around and he healed people. He helped them. Um, Others saw him primarily as a teacher uh, because oftentimes he would teach large crowds of people. He would talk and teach about scripture, about God, about life, about reality and truth. But then after a while, um, some people began to view Jesus like a judge uh, because he clearly came to help people, but he also had this wisdom. Whenever he taught, he had this insight. He had this incredible understanding. um, And it was almost like he could cut through everything else and figure out what was right, what was wrong, what was good, what was bad. He could see into people's hearts. He could see into people's motives. And so People began to come to Jesus and they would bring their questions to him or their debates or their issues or almost like their cases to him and ask for him to speak into that, to make a judgment about what was going on. So, for example, there was this one guy one time who came to Jesus and he he listed his resume. He basically said, Jesus, here are all the things I've done. Here are all the commandments I've kept. Here are all the laws I've kept. And what I want to know is, have I done enough to inherit eternal life? And he was expecting Jesus to look at the resume, right, weigh all the goods and subtract out all the bads and, and pronounce, yes, yes, you've done enough. You'll be able to go to heaven when you die, right? Or there's another uh, story. We're familiar with this one. We've read it a few times here at New Denver where um, there's two sisters and they're hanging out with Jesus and all of his disciples. And one of the sisters is getting the meal ready and getting the house ready and doing all this work. And the other sister isn't really doing much at all. And so the first sister comes to Jesus and she's like, Jesus, do you see everything that I'm doing? And my sister's not doing anything. Would you go tell her to help me out? Right? Would you go tell her that she needs to get busy and start doing some good stuff to help me out? Or there was another occasion. Jesus is, is teaching. He's, just, he's sort of walking through the crowds. And suddenly this guy yells out of nowhere, Jesus, tell my brother to split my inheritance with me. And Jesus is like, what is going on? And we don't really know the backstory, but apparently their father had maybe recently died and they had to figure out who was going to inherit the money. And there was a debate about who was going to get what and all those kind of things. And apparently he felt like he was maybe getting cheated. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, tell my brother split my inheritance with me. And look at how Jesus responds. This is in Luke chapter 12. Jesus replied, man right? Like, I love that. He's, it's a little bit like contemporary translation, bruh, bruh, like, dude, come on now. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? But it's pretty clear that's exactly what the man expected, right? That's what he wanted. That's what a lot of people came to Jesus expecting, that Jesus would be like a judge, And oftentimes people brought all their good stuff to him and they were hoping that Jesus would recognize all their good stuff and he would maybe give them all the things that they felt like they deserved but they weren't getting. And then he would look at all the other bad stuff because people would often point out, look at all the bad stuff that they're doing and they need to get what they deserve. Will you do something about that, Jesus? And it's almost like they were expecting Jesus to pronounce a judgment on their case. Now, before we think that's so strange, I think a lot of us do the same thing in the way that we relate to Jesus or the way that we relate to God. 
Because there's something in all of us when um, there's something good happening in our lives, when we've done good, when we've sacrificed in some way, or we wrote a check to help so-and-so out, or, or I should have gotten really angry last night, but I didn't. I was really patient, or, or I made this promise, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year, and I stuck with it, and I'm doing really well. Like There's something in us when we're doing something good that we hope Jesus is noticing. Right? We, we're kind of like, are you taking notes? Did you, do you see what I'm doing? And then we usually connect that to our expectations of what he will do for us. Because we hope that if we're doing something good for him, then you should be answering my prayer requests, God. You should be throwing some blessings my way and doing something good for me. And on the flip side, when we go through one of those days or one of those weeks or one of those seasons in our life where we're not doing so good where we're, we've just been lazy or we've just been giving in to that bad habit that we thought we had kicked or we've been doing that thing that we said we weren't going to do anymore and, and we know that God is just frustrated with us. He's exasperated. He's probably a little bit angry with us. There's no way he's going to give me anything right now, so I don't even want to ask him for anything. We don't usually pray during those seasons because we don't feel like we deserve anything from him. And we're relating to him like a judge. And we do it so much more than we think we do. And we could spend a lot of time today talking about why we often see God that way or why we often see Jesus that way. But I want to make a bold claim, and it's this. Jesus did not come into this world to be a judge. And if that is true, then it means every single time we relate to Jesus as a judge, we're missing the entire reason that he came. And that's true if you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're still trying to figure out if you believe in him or, or what you believe about him or what it looks like to follow him. But it's especially true for those of us who have been following Jesus maybe for a long time. Maybe you've been going to church your entire life. But what if in the primary way that we often relate to him, we're actually missing the very reason that he came. So today we're going to read a story that will address this question head on. Um, it starts at the very end of John chapter 7. It's a unique story because if you read this story in your Bible, when you get to this part of John, there will actually be a footnote or a note in your Bible that says, uh, this passage is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts of John. So let me explain this real quick. Um, we have a whole bunch of old manuscripts like this one. Uh, this one comes from the end of the second century or early third century. Um, and this is from this is the actual book of John. And um, in some of these ancient manuscripts, the story that we're going to read today, it's included and some of them, it's not. Some of them, it's included, but it's actually in a different place than where we find it today. So there's a few possibilities to explain this. Uh, the first possibility is that this story was originally in the book of John, but when a scribe later was copying the book, because that's how they reproduced books back then, scribes would copy it, a scribe made a mistake, like skipped a page, and the, the whole story just got left out. Or perhaps a scribe got to the story and thought, this is too provocative. And we don't need to be including this. And so they just didn't even include this story, and they took it out. And that's why it's missing in some of the old manuscripts that we have. It's also possible that this was not in John's original book. 
This was not something that John actually put in his book the first time he wrote it down. But it was a true story. It was a story that John had told and some of the other disciples had told. And people knew about it. And it was later that they realized some people said, John should have included this. We don't know why he didn't include it. And so they went back in and they added it back in. They weren't really sure where to put it. So they put it in this part in many of the manuscripts. But in some of the others, they put it in another part. But either scenario... We don't really have any reason or major reasons to doubt the authenticity of the story or the historicity of it or the truth of it. It's just one of those few passages we have in the New Testament where we're more uncertain of its origins. So with all that in mind, let's jump in. And this might be a familiar story for you. And if you sort of know where it's going, try not to go there with your mind. Try to listen to it like you're hearing it for the very first time. John chapter 7, starting the very end in verse 53, it says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's early in the morning. He goes to the temple area. He's probably in the outer courts which was like this huge courtyard where there would have been a ton of people there. There would have been merchants and a whole lot of things going on. And it says he sat down to teach. Now, in our day and age, usually whenever a teacher teaches, it's in a classroom. And people are sitting in rows and they're sitting down in front of the teacher and a teacher is standing up and they're standing behind a lectern. That's the way it works in our culture. In their culture, it was actually the exact opposite. It was very common for for rabbis and teachers to let everyone else stand and for the rabbi or the teacher to actually sit down. And when the rabbi or teacher sat down, it was like they were taking a position of authority. They were about to dispense wisdom and everyone would listen to this wisdom. That's how it usually worked in the synagogues during that time. So Jesus sits down and then it says this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman Caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So these two groups of leaders walk in. They're religious leaders, scribes or teachers of the law and the Pharisees. If you know much about these groups, these groups held all the power in that culture. They were the ones that had the authority. They were the ones that people respected and looked up to. And so these groups come in and they've got this woman. Maybe they're, you know, got her by the arm and they march her in and they stand her before Jesus. And she has been caught in the act of adultery. Meaning she was cheating on her husband. And it wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't someone was just talking about. It wasn't just somebody, something that was whispered about. It means she was caught in the act. There were probably two witnesses there. That's what Jewish culture required. Two witnesses had to see some. So two witnesses, and maybe the two witnesses are part of the group that brings her in. But there's no debate about what she's done. That's not a question here. She's guilty. She's been caught doing this. The question is how she should be dealt with. So you have to picture the scene. Jesus is sitting down. We don't know what he was sitting on. Maybe there's a stump there. Maybe there's a stone or a log. Maybe there was actual sort of wooden seat or chair there. But Jesus is sitting. 
The Pharisees and the leaders, uh, religious leaders are standing there. The woman is standing right in front of him and everyone else is gathered around. And it's like a courtroom scene, is it not? Right? Jesus is the judge. There's the prosecuting attorneys. There's the defendant. And there's the jury of public opinion. And what they're saying is, Jesus, we'd want you to pronounce judgment on her. We want you to sentence her. We know that she's guilty. We, we know that what she's done is wrong. We caught her in the act. So we're not asking you to, to, to declare whether she's guilty or not. She's already been declared guilty. We already know that. What we want you to do is sentence her. Tell us, how should she be punished? Now, there's something else going on because the story tells us next. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So uh, the religious leaders by this time in Jesus' ministry had become more and more threatened by his authority, particularly by his popularity with all the crowds. And so they began to seek out ways that they could discredit him with the wider crowds. And so they basically bring him this case. They have this case, and they want to know what he's going to do or say about it. And on one hand, they have the law of Moses, right? And in that culture, the law of Moses was the ultimate authority. Every teacher, every leader had to conform to the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was pretty clear on this case. If she's caught in the act of adultery, a woman like that should be stoned. Now, we might say that how barbaric, that seems cruel, that seems wrong. Um, we also don't know how often things like this were actually practiced in Jewish culture. There's not a lot of stories about it actually being practiced. So we might question it, or it might be hard for us to get our minds around. But in their culture, it just would have been accepted. It really wouldn't have been a question. That's what the law of Moses says. At least she deserves. So on one hand, that's what the law of Moses says. But on the other hand, the Jewish people lived under Roman rule at this time. And the Romans had taken away the power and authority to execute people. They had said, that's our power, that's our prerogative, that is our authority. So if anyone is caught doing some kind of crime that's worthy of capital punishment, only the Roman authorities can decide that. Only the Roman authorities can try someone and then execute them. We are the only ones that have that power. So the religious leaders think they have Jesus trapped, right? Because if he says that she should be stoned, well, then he might be in trouble with the Roman authorities. They can go straight to the Roman authorities. They see he's overturning the peace. He's a rebel against what's happening. You need to do something about this. But if he says that she should not be stoned, well, then he's going against the law of Moses. And then he'll be discredited as a rabbi and a teacher among all of the people. And so you can almost sense uh, the giddiness of these leaders because they think they've found the, the perfect case and they can trap Jesus. So they bring the woman. They say, what should we do? What should her punishment be? And then they wait. And you can imagine that like, you could hear a pen drop. It had to be silent because everyone's wondering, what will Jesus say? And look at how he responds. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. So everyone is waiting to hear what Jesus says. He's sitting there. The case is presented to him. And it says he just stoops over, 
and just start sort of scribbling, doodling, writing in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote, right? Does he start writing scripture? Is he writing people's names, right? What is he writing? Is he, is he drawing up a play like Peter? Create a diversion over here, and then I'll run this way. Like, wait, what is Jesus writing on the ground? I'll tell you my theory. Um, I think Jesus is getting frustrated because they brought this woman in, and they don't really care about the woman. They're using her as a pawn to trap Jesus. And yes, uh, her life is broken and it's messy and clearly she's made a a pretty bad mistake. She's been caught. She's guilty. We don't know why she cheated on her husband. Maybe her husband's a jerk. Maybe he abused her. Maybe he's the nicest guy in the world. We don't know. She cheated on him and she's been caught and now she's been dragged in front of everyone and her marriage is probably crumbling and her life is crumbling. Her reputation is destroyed. And you've got to think that Jesus knows these religious leaders who are supposed to love her and care for her and shepherd her couldn't care less about her. They're using her as a pawn. They don't care about her. They don't care about her heart. They don't care about her marriage. They don't care about her life. They're just using her. To try to trap Jesus. So I think that Jesus is getting livid. And he knows that if he opens his mouth, it's not going to be good. So maybe he's just going, okay, count to ten. One, <laughs> two, three, four. Right? He doesn't have an app, so he's just going, breathe. Breathe. Right? Take one minute to stand and breathe. Or, or maybe he's writing like, do not zap all of these guys with lightning. You know, I, who, what is he writing? We don't know. But if he wanted to, right, he could have stood up and said, okay, here's the deal. You guys want me to be the judge? I'll be the judge. So let's just go around the entire room. And let's just start right over here, right? We'll start with Daniel. Daniel. Tell us what you did last Saturday night. Why don't you just share that with everybody, and then I'll pronounce a sentence on you. And then Leanne, like, show us all your browser history, and then I'll pronounce a sentence on you. And we can just go all the way around the room, and eventually I'll work my way to her. But if you want me to be the judge, I can. We can work our way around, and I will pronounce sentences and judgment on every single person here. But what you need to know is it is not in your best interest. For me to take on the role of judge. You see, I think that it was in Jesus' kindness and mercy that he doesn't speak. That he simply stoops down and writes in the sand. Because they don't really know what they're asking for. Apparently, the leaders keep pestering him for an answer Because it says this next, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Paraphrase, I will not be a judge today. 
If you want to be the judge, you be the judge. So anybody that thinks they are worthy enough to be a judge, anyone who has got their life so much in order that they can stand above her and look down in judgment upon her, go for it. But I will not be the judge. And with that, it says this again. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away. One at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So a few minutes go by and people start slipping away. Apparently the older ones are a little wiser and smarter, so they head away first, right? You can almost imagine or hear the leaders as they sort of sulk their way out, like, who came up with this dumb idea, you know? But eventually, everyone disperses. Everyone goes back to their business. And it's just Jesus and her standing in front of him. And then look at what he says. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He says, woman, because he didn't know her name, and that sounds a little harsh to us, but it wouldn't have been harsh in their language. That was just a, a term of address, like madam or miss. Miss, where'd they all go? Where are all your judges? Is there no one left who can condemn you? The word that Jesus used here, this Greek word katakrino, um, it's sort of like two words put together together. In Greek, the the prefix kata is often attached to a verb, and it either intensifies the action of the verb, or sometimes it's like a preposition that means down or away. The word krino is just a common word for judge, or pronounce a sentence, or condemn. So what Jesus is literally saying is, is there no one here to down judge you? Is there no one here who's so much better than you that they can judge you or push you away? Is there no one here to condemn you down? She answers, no one, sir. And before we read back what Jesus says to her, I want you to imagine for a moment that it's you standing in front of Jesus. And your worst ugliness has been exposed. Like just, We've all got ugliness, right? Sometimes it works its way into our actions. Sometimes we just carry it deep into our hearts. So whatever it is, whatever the thoughts that you sometimes have or the attitudes that you sometimes have or the stuff that you sometimes do that you hope no one else ever finds out, The deep selfishness or the deep pride or the the deep envy or the deep racism or whatever it is that is deep and ugly inside there that you hope nobody ever sees. Imagine that you're standing in front of Jesus and it's been exposed. He can see it all. And you are standing there as embarrassed and humiliated and ashamed as you could ever be. And this is what he says to you then neither do I condemn you. 
Are you guilty? Yeah. Condemned? No. Caught in the act? Exposed, laid bare? Yeah. Judged down? No. Deserving of punishment? Yeah, maybe. Cast away? Pushed aside? No. And just think, standing there before Jesus, the only one in the world who could have, if he wanted to, rightfully pronounced judgment on her. The only one who had the legitimate right to condemn her. The only one who could have justifiably looked at her and said, what were you thinking? Do you know how much you've ruined your life with this? He didn't say any of those things. Instead, he simply said, no, I don't condemn you either. Now, he adds, and this is very important next, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. And she has to be thinking like, what? No lecture? No punishment? And it's almost like Jesus is saying, no, you don't need a lecture. You know what you did. You know, it wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just a slip up. You know the mess that this has created. You know the consequences you're going to have to navigate. So Go. Make some changes. Turn things around. But you need to know this. You're never going to be able to change anything in your life. You're never going to be able to turn anything in your life around until you come face to face with this truth first. I do not judge you. I do not condemn you. Everyone else might judge you, especially all the religious people. But I don't. I don't condemn you. And Jesus could say the same thing to every single one of us. And do you know why he doesn't judge us or condemn us? John actually tells us a few pages earlier. He writes this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. See, God could have sent Jesus into the world to judge the world, to settle all scores, to make all things that were wrong right again. And one day Jesus will do that. He'll come back and do that. And so if there is a part of you that, that longs for justice, that longs for things to be made right, for longs for people to, to get what they deserve, one day Jesus will come back and he'll take on that role. But that is not why God sent Jesus into the world the first time. God didn't send his son into the world so that we would have a relationship with a judge, with a scorekeeper, with someone who will sit over us in judgment, with someone who's going to keep track of all of our rights and wrongs. And when we're doing good, they're going to be nice to us and good to us. And when we're doing not so good, they're not going to be nice or good to us. That's not what any of us needed. That just brings pride, like the religious leaders had on one hand, or it brings shame and guilt and unworthiness like this woman must have felt on the other hand. And that's not God's heart. That's not his desire. That's not the kind of relationship he wants with us. 
See, God didn't send Jesus into the world to be our judge. He sent Jesus into the world to be what? Our Savior. So that all of us who put our faith in him and receive the forgiveness that he offers to us can stand before him and stand with him. And he can look at you and he can look at me and he can look at that woman that day and he can say, I know you're guilty, right? I know you screwed up. I know there's days you're going to screw up, right? And I know it's going to make you feel so unworthy when you do, but you just need to know I don't condemn you. I don't judge you. I don't cast you out. I don't push you aside. I don't consider you ever unworthy of a relationship with me. Another way of saying this is this. Jesus is kind to us even when we don't deserve it. Because his kindness is not based on what we have done or what we have not done. His kindness is based on who he is and what he did for us on the cross. Which means, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're trying to still figure out what that means or if you want to follow him, you just need to know with as much clarity as I can try to communicate, following Jesus is not about doing all of the right things. It's not about going and getting your life in order so that you can have a relationship with him. It starts with simply trusting in him as your savior. And then for the rest of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been going to church all your life. This couldn't be any more important. It means that you and I have got to stop relating to him like a judge. Your good deeds don't make you any more acceptable or worthy in his sight. And your bad deeds don't make you any less acceptable or worthy in his sight. Because he's not your judge. He's not mine. He's our savior. Let me pray for us. God, whatever we need today to help us embrace this truth in whatever ways that each of us have slipped into relating to you as a judge, would you please just reveal that to us? Help us to be honest about that. And we ask you to just forgive us We're sorry for thinking that's why you came, to judge us. We don't want to believe that anymore, and we don't want to live that way anymore. So help us to just see you and relate to you as the kind Savior that you are. Pray this in your name. Amen.